Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, how is the coronavirus affecting the business of China? Randall Denley of the Ottawa Citizen and National Post has a very interesting article on striking teachers. And there are renewed calls for Airbnb to be restricted after a shooting in Toronto. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The rest of the world's stocks seem stable. China's main stock index uh, took a bit of a hit in regard to the coronavirus. What does this mean as this virus, although it seems not to be as fatal as uh, one initially expected, uh, certainly no more than the average flu that we get. What everyone is very concerned about is the speed in which it spreads and uh, how it gets from point A to point B with uh, with such quickness. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, how damaging is this to the economy of China? It's very significant, um, and, and I, I want to make, a, a I think, an important distinction. It's not the virus itself. The virus itself has killed, I think, uh, 250 or 300 people. People say, that's a lot of people. There's 1.4 billion people in yeah, China. Yeah. The 300 people doesn't even measure statistically, and I'm not trying to trivialize their deaths and say they're unimportant. Mm-mm. Where am I going with this? It's the reaction by everybody else to the virus. So what are they doing? They're doing what you or I would do. They are self. No one's talked about this in the media at all. They've talked about the government doing quarantine and isolating the people of Wuhan. Mm. Nobody has talked about how individual people are quarantining themselves. It's Mm. called, I'm not going to work today. I don't want to catch that virus. I'm staying home. Mm. I'm taking my kids out of school. I'm not going to go shopping in the malls. I'm not going to go out and spend money because I might get it catch that virus from somebody out shopping. So the economy is coming to a halt because of the fear of getting the virus. And I'm not tr- uh, uh, condemning these people, mm-hmm. you know. Understandably, people are saying, my goodness, I don't want to get this. I might die. So people are changing their behavior. They're stopping going shopping. I have friends in Shanghai as I speak and in Beijing, and, they've, and I've been to both these cities a lot. I teach every year in Shanghai. I've got pictures. There's nobody on the streets. There's no cars, and normally yeah. the traffic jams there are unbelievable. And now you can run down the street, walk down the street, roll down the street, and you won't hit anybody. Mm. People are staying home. If they're staying home, they're not spending, and they're not working. And um, it is just, um, it, it, that's what's causing the decline. And by the way, the latest from uh, one of the business media in the States says that oil demand Oil is sort of a, a leading indicator of, you know, the business sector. Oil demand, oil consumption of oil in China has dropped 20% since the virus because people aren't going to work. There's less need to keep the, the machines running and so mm-hmm. forth. So it's showing up even in the demand for oil. What about uh, the rest of the country? How are they going to endure this? Uh, you mean China I mean, sorry, the rest outside? of the No, no, I'm sorry, the rest of the world. I misspoke there. The rest of the well, world. Other economies. I, yeah, I think that it's very um, rational in the sense that there is a recognition from all of the data, from all of the information, there is a recognition that so far it's been contained in uh, North America and Europe. I say contained, you know, sure there's isolated instances, you know, one person or two people in Toronto, one person in Vancouver, but very, very isolated. It is not a pandemic in Canada or the States or Europe. And and then on top of that, no one, I mean, to put it rather bluntly, no one has died, to my knowledge, in, from this virus in Canada, U.S., or Europe. And so there's a sense that so far it has been contained, and so the markets aren't reacting. People are not self-isolating, in my phrase, by simply staying home en masse, because there's no evidence that it has really come here yet. I think that will change uh, on a dime at a moment's notice if the recognition or perception emerges that a pandemic is emerging in Canada or the States or Europe. I think you'll see very, very, very similar behavior. That is to say, 
they uh, parents will keep their kids home. Why on earth would you send your children to school if you think they're going to get infected and they could get very sick? <laughs> Nobody yeah. was going to do that. Yeah. And people will say, I'm not going to work. Why do I want to go to work where I can get sick and get really, really sick? At this point, home. at this point, we're not seeing that, though, are we? And, are, no, and, and because, do, you, do you feel that people are reassured that yes. this isn't as, although, it, like you said, it's spreading incredibly quickly, it doesn't seem to be as fatal as we once thought, certainly not as fatal as SARS. And the latest, again, because I've been reading about yeah. this because of the impact, again, on the business uh, sector everywhere, and uh, the latest data I've read in reliable sources, you know, New York Times and BBC and sources like that, so this isn't sort of some wild internet uh, piece of data. This is from reliable sources. Suggests that the um, the mortality rate from this virus, the coronavirus, is about two percent mm-hmm. of uh, people that get infected die. Now that's okay. That's significant, but it's apparently far, far lower than it was for the SARS virus, right. which had a much higher rate of mortality. And uh, so I think that that's something we all think about. You know, okay, if I get the flu or get influenza, am I gonna, is it going to kill me? And, um, you know, understandably, we're rational people. And uh, so I think that as more information comes out, uh, uh, the chief medical officer was on the CBC National News two nights ago and said, look, this, uh, we're learning now that it's harder to get this virus than the SARS. You don't just you know, walk in our room and there's a virus in the air and kaboom, you're, you're, you're infected. It's harder to get it. And it has a much lower mortality rate. That's good news. Of course, the most important news is that it doesn't seem to have crossed over in any major way yet, at least, to Canada or the states. And so that's why we're you know, being very calm, and the government's been very good at getting out there and communicating information. And most importantly, I think, are our, our medical um, providers. You know, the doctors are out there, the yeah. hospitals are on high alert. They certainly seem to be better, a lot better prepared than they were for SARS. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's making a big difference in keeping the population uh, calm and cool and collected. What about China's that. response to this and the way they've shut things down? Um, I'm always fascinated by China because, as you know, I've been teaching there for 25 years. Yeah. I'm, I have a t- ticket booked for April the 8th. Still going, know. eh? I don't know. Oh. I, I'm being honest. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Air Canada, 50 airlines, this is reported by the Wall Street Journal, 50 major airlines around the world have stopped flying into China. My understanding is it's basically pretty well impossible to fly into China right now other than, you know, military people and, you know, prime ministers and, pre- you know, that level of people. Um, it, there's no planes flying in to get into China. Uh, I don't know if I will be uh, going there yet. It's yet too soon to be said, uh, determined. But to your question... I, um, I've been reading the analyses of what the Chinese government's done. Certainly in the last week or 10 days, I think they've been much more out there getting ahead of it. And I, I applaud them, you know, building two hospitals in like 10 days. Time. That was something to see that happen. Oh, that was something to see. That, and by the way, I've seen that before, not about hospitals, but yeah. I've seen them put up buildings in like 10 days. It's, it's just an astonishing sight to see, um, you know, a big building being built in 10 days. Uh, but um, in the early days, and this is being reported by people inside China. Um, and the New York Times just did an expose on this. They said that there, was, there, were, there were cover-ups by the Chinese government. They were yeah. denying that it was coming. They were denying that there was a crisis. They were denying that there was this uh, pandemic. And so they handled it badly in the first several days. Then they realized that their cover-up, if I can call it that, their cover-up strategy was an absolute failure. It wasn't working. It was, in fact, making the situation worse. And then they did a 180 degrees uh, change in direction. And uh, and now uh, I think that uh, they really have been out there. And I watched Xi himself. Uh, you know, he used the word, we're in a full-fledged crisis. Never thought you'd hear the Chinese leader ever use the word crisis about anything in China. Mm. So let's give him some kudos. And uh, But they, they seem to be getting ahead of it now. And uh, but what I've read is their healthcare system is stretched right to the to the max. Yeah. And uh, because there's only so many hospitals in any country, and there's only so many doctors, mm. and there's thousands and thousands of people, and, and of course there's probably many many more thousands going to the hospitals thinking they've been infected when they haven't. So it's tying up the whole healthcare system. It just shows how any country. This isn't about China. Any country, you know. And I've always said this about the healthcare system. It works because the vast majority of us, the vast majority of the time, do not need health care. Yeah. We're healthy. Mm. Yeah. We don't go to doctors. We don't go to hospitals other than to visit somebody maybe. Most of us are never in a hospital. I mean, I've gone, I've gone from the time I was born until I had my knee done two years ago. I'd never been in a hospital. Mm. And that's very typical. But it shows that in a crisis, 
when everybody or large numbers want to use the hospital. It shows how you can go from just a normal functioning system to just overloading it because people, it's not designed, hospitals and the healthcare system, I don't think, are designed for mass high volume demand. They're designed for exceptions, the odd person who gets sick. Most of us are not sick most of the time. Most of us are healthy, fortunately. So once China gets this under control and they are they they contain it, and I, I think they're a, they're still a ways away from that yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. Then the discussion will will turn to how this started and yeah. how do we stop it from happening again? How yeah. damaging is that to China in the sense that you know in some ways five G's cutting edge uh, technology yeah. and such, and yet here we are with the pandemic that's that's yes. that's overpowering its country and, and it all comes back to food chain issues how is how is china going to have to make this right considering the disruption and the chaos they've created all over the world now uh, i think you've asked a very very uh, important strategic question because nobody's talking about that they're focused understandably on the immediate immediate crisis and every time i try to talk about it people just say you know all of a sudden you get the racism angle thrown yeah. at you no no, and I'm not going to. I actually, again, I've gone there many, many times. I've been going to teaching in China for 25 years, and I've seen the change in the government. And I'm not going to try and tell you that China is now a democracy. It's not. It's an authoritarian country. But I will tell you this, and I have seen this. I think that the Chinese government, the People's Republic of China, the, China, the national government I'm talking, is much more responsive, notwithstanding it's not a democracy. They don't do public opinion polls testing the popularity of the leader. They don't. But they're nonetheless... They're much more sensitive today to public opinion in China, especially in China, the famous man in the street, woman in the street, the person in the street. And I am going to predict with great confidence that you can bet that the, after this is over, the Chinese government, I am absolutely certain, are going to be analyzing and having post-mortem analyses, post-mortem committees, analyzing what went wrong, who screwed up, what can we do again uh, to stop this in the future? Because mm-hmm. they realize they know they now know they've learned on the spot on the job. This was learning on the job how frightened people can become and how it can change their behavior and literally wreck the economy if an epidemic breaks out or a pandemic breaks out. And and so I think I'm predicting that there's going to be serious reaction by the Chinese government. I don't mean it in a bad sense. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're going to put more money into health care. But, you know, Ian, there was SARS back in 2002, 2003. Had they learned anything from that? Well, I would make a big distinction. China has changed, and I'm talking at the top, the mentality of uh, the leadership. Uh, I think there's an enormous difference uh, between 2002 and now. And I'm not trying to turn Xi into some kind of a sort of a... No, you know, backdoor Democrat, because he's not. But I think that the Chinese people are more sophisticated because China's become much wealthier. The, the social media technology, notwithstanding the ti- attempt by the Chinese government to suppress it, is not working. There's a very vibrant social media, very vibrant private conversations going on. And, and people are much more aware of these things. And that has forced the government to become more sensitive. No kidding. And it's not a democracy, let's be clear, I've already said that several times, it's not a democracy, but it's forced the government to become more attuned and sensitive to uh, uh, the public opinion. I have seen protests, believe it or not, in China. Now, of course, they won't allow the media to report them. I've seen protests about, you know, the really dirty air in a couple of cities mm-hmm. and, and where they've expropriated property. The government's just gone in and expropriated property. There are social movements, believe it or not, in China. Now, the government tries to suppress them, but they also monitor them. They monitor social media, I'm told, because they're try- they don't have public opinion polls. They don't have the ways that we have an open media, radio hotlines like yours, where you could monitor public opinion. So they have to develop sort of backdoor methods, and one of them is how many people showed up to protest Mm. in the local community uh, uh, this week. And so they do have this, and again, I'm not trying to argue that China is really a, a closet democracy. It isn't. They're trying to become more sensitive to public opinion without having the tools to be really measure it well. They don't have elections, which is a very Mm. good gauge. They don't have public opinion polls and so forth. But they are monitoring it. There will be a a reaction, I I predict, for the Chinese government. And in the sense to say, we don't want to have this happen again. 
So I think that'll be their starting point for their postmortem. What uh, we don't want this to happen again. So what do we have to do? Do we need to put more money into health care? Do we need to put more money into isolation? Uh, what do we have to do to to prevent this kind of a, an event from occurring in the future and damaging the reputation, the international brand of the Chinese government and the Chinese people? So I think that there's going to be serious consequences and blowback from the Chinese government, and there'll be people that are fired. I've already read a couple of people got fired in China, and I'm sure there'll be more people that are, be, are going to be fired in the days ahead. It's going to be fascinating if you do go over this time what the what what the feedback you get inside yes. of China will be from the citizenry there. I want to go. I mean, I'm fifty I'm fifty. I do not want to get sick. No, I hear you. Clear. But I really would love to go because my Chinese students are very smart. They're very bright. Uh, very, they're all in business, and you know, privately, they're very frank. I mean, publicly, they'll never say anything going public, mm-hmm. uh, you know, go on a radio show or a television show or write a letter to the editor or that sort of thing. But privately, they'll, they, they speak, you know, very frankly and, and honestly and, uh, and very thoughtfully. And uh, so I would love to hear what they're, but they're not going to do it on an email because yeah. there's a record, right? They'll do it verbally. Yeah. And so I'd love to, I want to have some verbal conversations and say, okay, what, what are people saying on the street? What's the reaction? Uh, but I can't get that unless I go there. And of course, there's a risk if I go there, if the, well, if there's a pandemic still, and full-fledged, I think my university isn't going to allow any of us to go. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's yet to be seen, but uh, it's going to be fascinating because some of my former students have sent me, as I've said, photographs of Shanghai, and Shanghai is 30 million people in one city. And it is just incredibly crowded everywhere. And to see empty streets, I just never thought I would see such a thing. Wow. It's just astonishing. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Randall Denley has got a great column in the National Post that was there on Friday. Ontario teachers should be glad Doug Ford didn't go after the really big stuff. I'm going to read you a little portion of the article uh, talking about, uh, he's talking about some of the feedback, the blowback from uh, the Ford government, for the Ford government. An elementary teacher writing a newspaper opinion piece offered the view that Premier Doug Ford's education plan is a stealthy attack on women and families. Another opinion writer spoke of the uh, dystopian educational future Ford is forcing on children. A professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies of Education in Education worried that the changes would damage a system that is revered around the world. A prominent Toronto opinion writer put the whole thing down to a power-drunk premier picking a fight with the harmless and lovable teacher unions. Uh, in fact, the education changes the government wants are not driven by Ford's imagined personality traits, but by the need to modestly constrain education spending and a desire to ever so slightly modernize a school system that is fiercely resistant to change. Uh, to some, it's extremely distasteful to even consider money when talking about children's education. That's the kind of thinking that got the province into the financial mess it is in today. For years, educational spending, uh, education spending rose sharply, even while enrollment declined, and that is not sustainable. To talk more about all of this, Randall Denley is with us now. Randall, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi. Uh, who is winning the public relations war here? You know, it's always hard to tell, but generally as the teachers, I think, because... The teachers that people know are the ones that teach their kids in school. So, you know, Mrs. Smith is a very nice lady, so she must be right, and they're just speaking up for our kids. It's a very simple message to sell. And when Dalton McGinty was going through his various waves of reducing class size in Ontario, it wasn't really based on any fantastic research about the ideal class size, but it was a great political point because, look, what if we make class sizes smaller? Well, that sounds good, right? Now, of course, you know, we're going the other way. Well, that must be a disaster. Hmm. The other thing was so good. This must be really, really bad. So the government's side in this, I think, is harder to sell. But to me, the more this stuff goes on, the more fed up parents get, and certainly the more fed up non-parents get. The the one that really got me last week is, hey, teachers aren't going to fill out report cards. That's not part of their job. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, they get a professional development day for the sole purpose of filling out report cards. Mm. So they still show up at work for that day, and I guess they don't do anything because there's no kids. But you know, how does that really compute? How can you get a professional development day to carry out a job task and then say, it's not part of our job? 
when they should never do it then when did this become a pr battle as opposed to a labor negotiation because again i remember going i'm in my 50s i remember going through this as a kid as a student and and again it didn't matter what the government of the day was it's basically the same thing you know and in the uh harvey bischoff the president of the secondary school teachers union said on this show uh, when i posed this question to him about all the political parties he said well every government is out to raid the education system and those were his words so at raid, what uh, raid was his word and and what when did this become a propaganda war oh i i would trace it back at least to uh, when bob ray was premier in the 90s because you know, the unions were ecstatic, and NDP premier, wow, we're going to get everything we want. And yeah. then, you know, Ray, of course, had a huge deficit, and he had to do something. Okay, well, how about, you know, we work fewer days, and just, well, you know, forget it, Ray Day is terrible. And then, of course, Harris, you know, that was an eight-year war, and then they were at war sporadically with the liberals, or, of course, at war with the conservatives. The fundamental idea here, I think, is that teaching unions have decided that they're the experts, and anything that happens in the schools should be decided by them. How did that happen? Because we seem to give this union more credit, or these unions more credit uh, and more responsibility than they a- actually have. I mean, let's be honest here. These are, and rightly so, these are union members who are paying dues, so they are represented in a labor negotiation. Their job is not to look after the kids. And yet they constantly present it as that. And to me, it's like General Motors going on strike so they can build you a better Chevy. Yeah, well, it, it gives them a more sympathetic way to pressure the government, I think. And you remember that slogan, which we still hear from time to time? Well, the, you know, the teacher's working conditions are the student's learning conditions. So the happier the teacher is with his working conditions, well... Uh, students will benefit in some unspecified way as well. Are things different this time, Randall? I mean, it seems that, and, and, and here's where I thought, you know, because normally the, pro, the the union propaganda war wins in the end and, and so on. But what I noticed uh, last week was this was always about e-learning and class sizes versus compensation on the government side. Uh, and then last week, all of a sudden, all day kindergarten came up again. And I remember having Lecce on this show saying, we're not touching it. So it, it seems as if they weren't getting enough traction with the other two issues. So they were bringing back kindergarten, which, again, Lecce said uh, before the weekend and signed off that we're not touching it. Uh, it seems as if the goalposts are moving here. Yeah, the, the kindergarten thing has popped up from time to time in these negotiations, and it to me, that's just a blatant attempt to scare parents. Oh, my God, they're going to take away your full-day kindergarten. Well, they've already said they won't. That's the point. Right. And, and now they've signed off on that. But, of course, they're horribly untrustworthy. So the union wants to lock that down with a, a pledge right in the contract. Absolutely couldn't be done. What? I, I think the government's showing some flexibility in this, and the unions are showing virtually none. They haven't made concession one or move one on anything that we'll get a deal. And that's just not how labor negotiations work. I mean, normally both sides say, look, here's my number one thing, got to get that. And for the government, it's the 1% raise because that has uh, ramifications right through the public sector. So that's a big deal for them. If, uh, you know, more spec ed help is really the biggest thing that the teachers want, the government will do that. I have no doubt about that. They're going to spend more money before this is over. But somebody has to get things moving, and you're never going to get a deal. Uh, they, you know, the secondary school teacher said, well, we're, we're willing to sit down to mediation. All the government has to do is agree to all our conditions. <laughs> exactly. That's what I think yeah. I, I find astounding. They've, they've offered nothing, well, and they've done nothing. Well, it's like, well, what have you done? You yeah, know? completely, and we'll find a deal. Yeah, yeah. It's such a, an aberration now, too, to see union strikes like this, especially strikes of professionals. It's just... You know, in decades past, strikes were much more common as a labor tool, but they're very rare now. You very seldom hear about strikes. And yet, teachers, are just they can never get a deal without strikes. Uh, unthinkable. You know, you, you said a very valid point, that, that we were at this every couple of years. And as I said, I mean, having to deal with it as, stu- as a student and now as a parent. Are Ontarians changing their opinion of this? I hope so. I mean, at some point, you think people would get 
uh, fed up with all this. And you know, one of the big things that I refer to in my column that you mentioned in the intro, and I think is incredibly important, is the the huge gap between the teacher's job as described in the contract and the job that teachers do day in and day out. You know, teachers get very hurt and offended, and you know, I certainly heard from a lot of them after the column. Well, do you not realize we do all these extracurricular things? We do all these extra things? Yes. And a lot of it really ought to be specified as part of your job, but particularly things like leading field trips or filling in report cards. I mean, how is that not part of the job? Well, Ontario's never gotten to the point where you've got a contract that describes the job realistically, and that's always gone the union's way. Well, let's define exactly how many students we have to teach. Let's lay out exactly how many minutes we get every day for preparation. Let's lay out how many professional development days we get. We can specify all those things that are beneficial to teachers. But anything that would be beneficial to the employer, not going to happen. And that's why we see these you know, debilitating work-to-rule things that always precede the strike, because there's nothing to stop them from doing it. They don't have to leave the building. They don't lose any pay. They just stop doing stuff and putting pressure on people. I mean, how in good conscience can teachers say, yeah, well, we're not going to report back on your kids' progress. Report card, not going to happen. It's not like it's the first time it's happened either. It's just become part of this sort of ridiculous pantomime we have to go through before a deal is finally reached. The only thing that's new in any of this is possibly e-learning, and that's because the technology didn't exist when this all started decades ago. Yeah, um, I've had it, many, many people tell me in the last couple of days that a, a terrible idea. It's faulty. You know, the students require enormous direct support from teachers. They'll never learn anything. And yet, at the same time, many school boards, including most of the major ones, already offer e-learning courses. So it's not really a new thing. Randall, how much of this has to do, now we've heard that enrollment is on the uptake. Uh, that being said, it's been declining or flat for, for decades now. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's, whether it's uh, e-learning or class size, these are all direct issues that affect the bottom line of the union. Not so much teachers and the class, but the union in the sense that, you know, if you're, if you're using less teachers, there's less dues coming in, there's less membership, and if you're using e-learning, the same sort of thing. So uh, is anybody in the public putting together that this is all about keeping union membership and the numbers up as is, is relatively high and stable as they possibly can during a period oh, of declining part enrollment? Of, part of the picture. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. I mean, unions are, they look out for their members, but they look out for themselves, too. And the fewer members you've got, the less power the less you money have, they less make. money have coming in to, yeah. you know, meddle in things. So. Uh, do you think the public is sooner or later, or a political party is sooner or later going to say, you know what, our education system is doing okay, we have to concentrate on our health care system as our population continues to age? It seems we don't think twice about bending over to give the teachers money, yet we don't want to give too much more money to the health care system. And yet we're complaining about hallway medicine and such. Yeah, the complicated thing on health care is... We probably should be spending more money, but it's not all about money. It's about how we spend the money we have. When you look at the studies of similar systems in Europe, they almost always get more bang for the buck than we do. More doctors, more hospital beds, shorter wait times, because they're structured differently. We seem to have a very bureaucratic, inefficient system. And I think you know the, this provincial government is taking some reasonable steps to try to deal with that, but it's extremely difficult to change that. It's a very big system. It's very set in its ways. But these uh, health teams that are introducing which seem to be enthusiastically supported by people working in healthcare. I think that's a major initiative. And the, the government's really trying to do a number of things in education, which is good because PCs have stayed away from this subject for a long time. And the biggest thing they're trying to do is to get parents and kids to pay more attention to trades education, which is a huge thing that needs to be mm. done. So I think, you know, and they're paying more attention to math, too. So they're doing some good things, but this education dispute uh, distracts people on the good things that are happening. And it it just is disturbing to me when I hear people who ought to know better talk about how this, this will destroy the education system. 
Yeah. Well, it's not going to destroy the education system. And what happens when you get a, an agreement, if you do, that you don't allow some of the changes? You spend a lot of time telling people that, well, the system would be no good after these changes are made. Well, here they are. Mm. Uh, 74% of Canadians want bargaining between governments and unions to be transparent, says an Ipso poll. Is that the answer here? Uh, wouldn't hurt. I mean, uh, the OSSTF, the secondary union, unusually laid out its demands. The others haven't done that, so we know less about what they want. We certainly know what the government has offered in broad strokes, so I don't think it's all wrapped in mystery, but you know, this really comes down to one basic point. Who's in charge of education? Is it the government that the public elects, whatever party that is? Or is it the unions who just do what they think is right and send the public the bill? It's pretty clear what the union's thinking is on that. And most of the time under the Liberals, they went along with that. You know, Dalton McGitty was much tougher back in 2012 on all of the stuff than Doug Ford has ever been. Yeah, we're going to freeze pay, we're going to cut a bunch of stuff, and we're going to legislate it. Ha, take that. Didn't work out in the end. But it's a much, much tougher approach than what this government's doing. We're saying, okay, we're going to reduce the number of teachers. Are you surprised that... Attrition. Are you Exactly. Are you surprised? And then all we hear is they're going to fire 10,000 teachers. And is that the case? No, it's, it's just it's an no. attrition thing. And are they hiring them back? Um, it, it seems odd that after 15 years of liberal rule, and, and I remember McGinty saying, we're going to bring peace back to the classroom, which of course just means writing a big check. And then they made the guy walk the plank when he asked them, when he asked them to take a pause during the recession. Yeah, I mean, really shocked by that. At the time. I'm sure, I'm sure he was. Like, these are my friends, right? I've yeah. done everything for them. And now I'm asking for you know, a little bit of short-term help, a couple of years while we try to get a handle on the deficit. Could you help us out a little bit? No way. Huh? What it, have you done for me lately? Is it, is it resonating with the public that this happens no matter who the political party is involved? And again, Dalton McGinty, the teacher's premier, he was left to walk the plank. Yeah, and I think that's quite well known. It's an important point for the PC government to refer to, it, and they often refer to it as... Part of what's, I think, disturbing about this is okay, you favor the teacher's point of view, make total sense to you, it's all good. But then, well, why is the government doing what it's doing? Well, it's got to be something to do with Doug Ford. He's a bad guy. So he's doing it because he's a bad guy. As Wynn was a a bad woman, you know, McGinty was a bad guy, Bob Ray, another bad guy. To me, it's like, grew up. That's not a very sophisticated way to look at the world. You know, the government's job, any government's job is to balance the budget. And this government is trying to do it pretty cautiously and pretty slowly. It's trying to minimize the effect. They're spending billions of dollars on um, money to tie the boards over while they increase class sizes, assuming that ever happens. So they're doing it in a pretty uh, decent way, I think. But it's just the mere idea that it's happening is beyond the scope of imagining of some people who just think, well, it's important. The government should just spend the money on it. You know, and you bring up a valid point in the column, and I'm reading the headline again, Ontario teachers should be glad Doug Ford didn't go after the really big stuff. It would be perfectly reasonable to ask why teachers have a pension set up that allows them to retire in their 50s in a society where others have to retire much later, or just are, simply because we're living much longer. Yeah, I mean, we, we had that and continue to have a big discussion, and, you know, the... Uh, Harper government wanted to hand out the old age security at 67, Trudeau quickly uh, restored that to 65 because, well, we want people to have to work past 65. But, you know, typical private sector retirement, if you can afford to retire, retires sometime in your 60, 62 range. It's, uh, you know, clearly lower in the whole public sector. It's a 30 year and out thing, typically. So, You've got really two different classes here. You've got, I mean, I know they pay into pensions, but so do the public. You've got people who establish a great pension they can take in their 50s and it's indexed. And a lot of people in the private sector who are paying for all this don't have a pension at all. Mm. So there's a huge disparity there, and I think governments are going to have to address that at some point. But these are big, you know, fundamental things that this government 
could have gone after, but it didn't. Instead, it's trying to make some small changes so we can increase spending on education, but it's not as fast as it's been increased in the past. And, you know, for this, they're kind of made out to be monsters who hate children, hate education, mm-hmm. hate mm-hmm. teachers. It, people just need to step back and think as citizens and taxpayers as well. Like, well, what makes sense then? Okay, you're a teacher, but, you know, you're a citizen as well. You pay taxes. If the government said, yeah, you know, you're right, we need to spend a lot more in education, we're going to bring in a new special tax to cover it, how popular would that be? Hmm. Everybody wants more, but nobody wants to pay more. That's the problem. Randall Denley's been with us. Ontario teachers should be glad Doug Ford didn't go after the really big stuff. Uh, past column in the National Post on Friday. Randall, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, renewed calls for, an Air, uh, for uh, Airbnb uh, to be regulated after a shootout at an Airbnb this weekend in Toronto. And uh, people are being are very concerned about this since it's not the first time they've had activity in regard to Airbnbs. A shooting at a Toronto Airbnb that left three men dead Friday night has led to renewed calls for action aimed at cracking down on short-term rental units. Fourth victim rushed to the hospital with gunshot r- uh, wounds. A fifth person was being treated uh, as well. Uh, apparently, the shooting occurred within the condo unit and an adjacent hallway. They are not looking for uh, any suspects at this time. To talk more about all of this, Torben Wieditz is with us at Fair BNB and is on the line now. Torben, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having us. What is Fair BNB? Fair BNB is a coalition that was formed in 2016. Um, to push for fair and balanced regulation to ensure that, you know, people are safe and uh, Airbnb is not going to completely um, um, suck up all available housing units um, and turn them into ghost hotels. So uh, there's lots of of avenues as far as uh, your organization and your concerns for Airbnb. Uh, Are they responsive to any of your concerns in any way? Well, Airbnb is kind of hiding behind uh, a narrative that they are just enabling ordinary residents to occasionally rent out their own homes, Um, which is, you know, to anyone that has looked into what Airbnb does in cities around the world and and how they operate and what the data tells us, absolutely not the case. What Airbnb makes its money off are high-volume hosts that systematically turn residential housing stock into ghost hotel units. And they not only remove housing units that are desperately needed in in low vacancy areas like Toronto, but they also spread a lot of health and safety nuisance issues deeper and deeper into our residential communities. And Airbnb, um, you know, suggests that this is actually not the case and they shouldn't be regulated. But everyone that looks at how they operate knows exactly what their business model is and what effective regulation looks like. Um, And that's exactly what the city of Toronto has done in 2017. They have put rules on the book that were then appealed by uh, hosts, and the appeals were bankrolled by Airbnb to slow down the implementation so that they can make more money in Toronto. Um, And right now, those rules were actually approved at the local planning and appeal tribunal and are in effect. And operators of you know multiple listings are essentially illegal in the city and with a very high likelihood this unit that you know uh we were talking about where the tragedy happened on friday was in all likelihood one of those commercial operator held units that means that it has probably in all likelihood been a legal unit and we can see about six and a half thousand of them to be they, they need to be removed and airbnb should follow suit and actually, you know, follow the city's regulations right now. So uh, as of 2017, uh, where is this law with the city of Toronto? I mean, has it been implemented? Is it is it in place right now? Well, that, or is it still being is. debated? No, no, no. The city uh, council approved it unanimously in December 2017. Then it was appealed um, by uh, uh, individuals whose appeal was bankrolled by Airbnb. So that stalled the implementation of the rules until we got to hear 
the appeal at the tribunal, um, which ended in October of 2019, so just a few months ago. Um, so the reason and the fact why the city has not been able to enforce its own regulations is because they have been slowed down um, by a number of appellants and Airbnb, which essentially holds the city hostage. The city cannot do anything up until literally now. So now is the time where the city has to. So at this at this act. point at this point those avenues have been exhausted and these rules are in place. Is that accurate? As it as it stands right now, the rules are in place. There is still a move by one of those Airbnb hosts to seek leave to appeal to the divisional court, which has not yet been granted by a judge, which means that as of now, the city's rules are in effect, um, and um, commercially held Airbnb units are in fact illegal in the city of Toronto. So what is the law? So in fact, you, you cannot rent out an Airbnb unit in Toronto? Is that the law right now? No, no. The, the law actually um, allows people like you and me to rent out our own principal residence right. on Airbnb a few times a year. But... Uh, you and I, we cannot go around and lease up or buy up dozens and dozens of corner units right. and turn them into ghost hotels. So this is so be this has become like professional Airbnb, where people are going out and buying multiple condo units, not with the idea of renting them out, but the idea of just using them as an Airbnb type service. One hundred percent, and those are high volume hosts that run anywhere between like two and sixty five in the city of Toronto. Um, and, um, these, I'm sorry, I missed uh, that. How many did you anticipate, or how many did you think that were in operation in Toronto right now? I think the, there are about 23,000 listings, but really? the, the highest volume host has 60 uh, entire homes advertised on Airbnb. Hmm. How difficult is this to police? Well, it depends. Um, you know, it, it's, it's fairly easy to collect the data and to, to find out what listing listings are illegal right now and we do this uh, routinely we we look at airbnb data to find out um, what listings are currently uh, would be illegal and if airbnb has problems looking at its own data we are happy to help um, it can't be that difficult uh, for you know airbnb to remove listings they know are not held by you know principal residents, but are held by investors who have like up to 60 listings on their platform at any given time. So, you know, it can't be that difficult. And we hope that Airbnb will do the right thing and follow the city's rules and regulations and delist uh, all these these high volume hosts, which should free up about six and a half thousand entire homes across the city of Toronto. Uh, what is Airbnb's uh, role here? What What is their thought of this new uh, of this new rule in Toronto, and is it up to them to police this? Well, that's uh, what we have been pushing for as a coalition, and the City of Toronto's regulations has put considerable onus on the platform itself to say that um, they are not allowed to to advertise illegal listings. So what we need to do in the City of Toronto is, uh, you, if, you wanna, if you and I want to rent out our own home, we have to get a license, a permit number from the city after um, proving that this is indeed our own principal residence. And this permit number has to be displayed on any advertising advertisement on Airbnb's platform. So if Airbnb lists any listing in the city of Toronto without a valid um, uh, permit number, it's in, in, in effect an illegal listing and it should be very easy for Airbnb to, you know, scroll through its data to see, oh, these listings have no permit numbers, so therefore they must be removed. Um, or, at this point, it's also very easy for Airbnb to scroll through its own data to say, oh, these hosts have like 2, 16, 24, 66 units on our platform, so they cannot possibly be all principal residences, so they could easily remove these listings as well. Um, uh, what about Airbnb's reaction to all of this? I mean, because theoretically they're going, to, you know, they're going to have to police it. And I guess if they're found to have uh, owners that, that are violating this, uh, they have to pull the ad. They have to pull the ad. What is their reaction to this? Are they fighting this in any way? 
Well, Airbnb fights regulation around the world at any given point in time. Uh, on the one hand, they are always saying they would like to cooperate with municipalities and they're here to help. On the other hand, they are bankrolling um, appeals and lawsuits to um, stifle regulation. Um, the city of Oakville, uh, you know, a neighboring municipality um, of Toronto, has very strict rules in place and Airbnb is not collaborating with the city at all. They pretty much ignore the rules and regulations and operate illegally in that city, uh, which, you know, to anyone listening here that, that also listens to Airbnb's rhetoric around them wanting to be good corporate citizens, they do not give a shit. Considering there are so many in these large cities, uh, is, is it going to be impossible to shut them down? I think the city's approach is a good one. Um, you know, Airbnb should not be allowed to list listings without valid permit numbers. So, you know, by that uh, extension, um, it should be fairly easy to see, um, to scroll through Airbnb's data and listings to um, identify those properties that are not valid and are not uh, permitted. So, you know, by doing that, it should be fairly easy to, to identify these listings and force Airbnb to remove them. Is there any sort of recourse for other tenants? As you read more about this story that happened in, in on Friday in Toronto, uh, it sounds as if um, you know tenants had been complaining that this sort of thing has been going on for a while. Is there anything tenants right. can do here? You know, I really feel for residents in Toronto's condo towers that uh, you know have to live in 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 situations where they feel they are living in a hotel rather than in a residential community. And um, in many cases, they have very little recourse, um, with the exception that now we have city rules that are in effect, and those rules can be enforced. And that's the first time that this is actually the case, because these rules were under appeal until October, and we had to wait for uh, the tribunal to render a decision. So now is the time where these residents actually um, can finally um, get some resolution of their problem. The the only sort of uh, wrinkle in this is that there are a number of high-volume hosts in the city of Toronto, as I mentioned earlier, that are trying to seek a leave to appeal to the divisional court to further delay the implementation and the enforcement, which would further hold residents across the city of Toronto hostage. So, um, you know, that's something to consider that may actually... Um, coming to play here. But as of now, um, the good news for condo residents in Toronto is that Toronto has rules on the books. Toronto can enforce these rules. And, um, you know, if, if residents in Toronto's condo towers have issues, they should contact the City of Toronto. They should contact 311. They should contact their councillors. They should contact Fairbnb Canada. And I'm sure that together we can um, be able to help at this point in time. Uh, are you concerned, uh, obviously, with these court cases that are going on and, and people, uh, uh, parties delaying these these uh, issues in court and such? I mean, uh, do they have, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, do they have a, a valid uh, argument in the sense that when they purchased these condos, this, these laws weren't in place, now they are in place, that changes the game? Are you worried that there will be lengthy delay in litigation here? No, not not really. I mean, the the thing is that um, some of these uh, um, 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 corporate um, operators they they are pushing for something called an illegal non-confirming use. But to everyone involved, it is quite clear that what they have done in residential condominium towers is an illegal use in the first place, and they cannot possibly ask a court to um, um, to continue something that was illegal in the first place. Um, so, you know, from our perspective here, um, they do not have a case at all. And um, it's been quite interesting to listen um, to their arguments throughout this appeal process in the summer of 2019. Um, you know, and, and the, the tribunal actually realized that and wrote a very, very solid and um, thoughtful decision um, that, you know, to us seems extremely, you know, difficult to find any issues with. So we're not really worried about um, their attempt to bring it to the divisional court to actually go anywhere. Uh, how long do you think this is going to take to work out in a city like Toronto? I mean, will we still be talking about this two years from now? 
Uh, I surely hope we won't. Um, but we also have to see, you know, how Airbnb reacts here and if Airbnb is indeed, uh, uh, you know, a good corporate citizen, which, you know, I highly doubt. But, you know, like giving the give them the benefit of doubt and, and see what Airbnb can do to um, to help Toronto address its housing crisis and address all the problems that, you know, commercial Airbnb units introduce into otherwise quiet residential communities. Are other are there other large cities in North America that have got this right that have that have solved this issue? Yeah, we always point to San Francisco, um, you know, the, the the hometown of Airbnb, so to speak. Um, they have introduced legislation that is very very similar to what Toronto has done, and in San Francisco's case, Airbnb had to remove about half of its overall listings because they became illegal. Um, Airbnb had to remove about half of its listings in Boston just uh, a couple of weeks ago. So there are a number of cities that have done it right, and, and Toronto's regulations uh, certainly uh, mimic this this approach. And that's why we are, uh, um, you know, cautiously optimistic that when it comes when it comes push to shove, Airbnb will have to remove, you know, about 50% of its inventory in Toronto because that would be deemed illegal. And what happens to a city when Airbnb comes in and say, as you just mentioned, r- removes 15% of its, uh, 50% of its stock from, from the listings? What's the reaction to that? I mean, do we see hotel rooms go up, uh, v- uh, vacancies go down? I mean, wh- how, does, how does the city, uh, wh- what's the reaction after that happens? Um, I think we will see um, a number of things. One would be um, the return of permanent housing stock and uh, uh, somewhat of a resolve of um, the availability crises of um, uh, housing stock, permanent stock in the city. Uh, what we would also see is a reorientation of um, investment into actual hotel stock. So investors would actually start building hotels again, which would mean that, you know, we would have a higher, a much higher multiplier effect across the local economy. Um, you would produce better jobs, not just gig economy jobs. Um, and then also, um, you, you would, um, you know, in very likelihood see that a lot of the ordinary um, Airbnb hosts, that rent out their own places as principal residences, they will have a lot more demand. Uh, they will have a lot more demand because they don't have to compete against uh, illegal commercial operators who, um, who uh, uh, you know, transform residential communities and convert housing stock into hotel stock. So it actually would be a, a win-win-win situation for Toronto, for Toronto's local economy, for the housing market, and for those uh, legitimate uh, legal Airbnb hosts that rent out their own principal residence. Torben Wieditz has been with us at Fair BNB. Uh, there are renewed calls for action on Airbnb after Airbnbs after a deadly shooting took place in a rental over the weekend in Toronto. Torben, thank you so much for the time and insight on this. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having us. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.